welcome to This Is Not About Your Body, where we talk about all the real shit body image is actually about because it's not just about the way you look. I'm your host, Jesse Nealon, and today I have a very special guest. This is Suzanne Garrison, who is a somatic psychotherapist who uses body-based work to help people better understand and accept themselves. And she also happens to be a very dear friend of mine and my collaborator in a handful of uh, workshops that we ran in New York City years back on body image and self-acceptance. So welcome, Suzanne. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have you start off just a little bit, I think, by like telling the story of who you are and what you do. Like, I realize that's a huge question, but just sort of the (laughs) basics so that people kind of know who you are. Sure. So I'm a therapist based in Brooklyn, New York, and um, I tend to work with um, people learning to understand how their body sensations are really giving them further information about themselves. Um, A lot of times people walk into my office and they're really afraid of their bodies or their body sensations, or they have a lot of history that comes with how they feel about their bodies and themselves. Um, And so there's a lot of work that we do to try to integrate our minds and our bodies and understand that this is, this is an integrated interrelationship here that they, they don't operate separately. So I do have a million questions for you on that today, but I'm going to start by just um, sort of the thing that brought us together that we first really connected on was that I was talking a lot in my work about how our conditioning as girls and women impacts our relationship with our bodies, um, in particular, like uh, sort of empowerment, disempowerment stuff, body image, self-worth, all of that. So I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about how you came to sort of that, what, basically what you yeah. see in that space in your work. Totally. So I feel like I come to the work with a really um, important personal background with with this perspective, um, I was a, before I became a therapist, I was a professional dancer and I'd spent my entire life, (laughs) you know, my entire childhood, my entire teenagehood, you know, working up to this idea of being in professional dance companies. And so for me, from a really young age, there was always this fixation on, on my body and not just what it could do physically, could it actually do the movements? Could it be a performer? But but what it looked like, what were the aesthetics of the body? And I spent a lot of my professional career battling those two, those two concepts that that how I look and what I do are both related and also don't have to be mm. related. And that was a conflict as a professional dancer, I never fully reconciled for myself. And, you know, doing my own personal work about body image and how I treat myself and the things that I would say to myself and how that was held within my body, doing my own personal work around that really led me to become a therapist myself and, and led me down this path of really wanting to help people understand that body-mind connection, really integrate that concept and understand that they're not at war with one another and they don't have to be. So what would you say the relationship? I mean, that's such a unique background, obviously, like not a lot of people are going to listen in and be like, oh, I resonate with the background as a dancer. <laughs> but I think a lot of people can resonate with the fact that it is very difficult to reconcile being a person from the inside and being sort of observed as a person from the mm-hmm. outside. So what would you say that that like leads to having, having a rift there, feeling like that disconnect. What is that? 
end up creating well, for a person? Well, I think you're talking about maybe a couple different things. One is this body-mind connection, this idea that they don't have to battle each other and that we have to understand that how I think directly impacts how I feel, which is a body health experience, how I feel. Our feelings are, are held in our bodies and how I feel in my body and about my body is going to impact how I'm thinking in the world. And so I think once we can work on that and integrate that a little bit, then we can address the second part of your question, which is, why do I care so much about what other people think about my body? <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know? so let's do the first one first then. <laughs> You're saying that these two things go back and forth, these two bits of information and influence the brain or rather the thoughts influence mm -hmm. the somatic sensation, which is the feelings we, we feel in our bodies. And then those sensations also influence what we think. Yes. When you say integrating them, then what does that mean? I think it means understanding that it's a very fluid inter interrelated relationship, that it's not that I can feel this thing in my body and my thoughts are very separate from it, mm. but it's that this idea that I can feel this thing in my body. And so I have to consciously be very curious about that. Okay. Why am I feeling this thing in my body? What is this thing trying to teach me about how I am actually thinking you know, mm. what is this thing trying to teach me about how I'm existing currently in the world? Can and you give an example a, of that? Sure. So, you know, a really, really common example is anxiety or nervousness. You know, we talk about it all the time in terms of body felt sensations. I have butterflies in my stomach, my mm. stomach, you know, dropped, it feels like rocks, whatever, you know, there's so much language around this. And that's, that is the body felt sensation that's describing this mental experience of, I understand that I am nervous. I might have some racing thoughts. I might be perseverating on something. There mm -hmm. might be an intrusive thought that's coming in there. And if we can recognize that there's this feeling that is happening in my body as it is happening, we can probably work on what's going on in our minds. Right. Now, I will say that one of the first times I was in therapy as an adult, um, she, my therapist had me basically like try to notice and separate the somatic sensations of, it was around social anxiety, but it was like the anxiety mm -hmm. from the thoughts. And I felt very sure that she was an idiot and wrong about everything. <laughs> I had absolutely no faith in the idea that, cause she basically said, once you can acknowledge that it's somatic, you can, you can sort of regulate whatever, all things that I believe now. But at the time it just felt to me like a flood of thoughts. I didn't feel the mm -hmm. connection or awareness. Um, is that something that you see a lot in your work? Oh my God, totally. And it really happens at the beginning of the work. And really yeah, what yeah. it is, is that when people start to notice these sensations in their bodies that have always been there, but they've been totally ignored when they start to, to acknowledge what's actually happening, we become really merged with it. We become really enmeshed with this, this feeling, this sensation, and that creates a lot of chaos in our minds. You know, we don't know what to do with that. We feel really overwhelmed by it. We feel like there's no distance for ourselves yeah. and we, we feel our identity is really lost in this feeling. And so by your therapist instructing you to kind of separate the two temporarily, that makes yeah. it a little more manageable. And, and it's kind of counterintuitive that I'm like, integrate, integrate, you know, yeah, they're, they're yeah. the same, they function together, but first separate them. <laughs> you know? But that really is one of the first steps is I have to recognize how I am feeling before yeah. I can really do anything else. And a lot of times if people 
are having a lot that's going on in their lives or you know they're really really suffering with something the idea that i can i can influence these two things together is almost an impossible task the whole thing is yeah. just so overwhelming so we have to kind of take it piecemeal first yeah definitely something i see with my clients a lot would be like an inability to name really often anything going on in their body, but in particular, the relevant emotional stuff going on their body when they are struggling with body image, because that lives in either a very thinky thought kind of place where it's like, I just look terrible. I just like, yeah, am gross like that. Those are thoughts. Right. And then often it will land as just like a sort of anxiety, shamey, like just a bad feeling, mm -hmm. very general bad feeling. Um, so in those cases, if somebody was new to the work, would you say they first separate basically like identifying what those things are first? Sure. But I actually think before that step can even happen, there has to be some kind of trauma response that's addressed because mm -hmm. everything that you're talking about is really a flight response. I am so disconnected from my body. I'm out, I'm living outside of it. You know, I am so disassociated from what is happening in me that I'm working really hard to think about it. And, and I have no connection to what any of it means. And I have no connection to any kind of sensation that is happening in my body. These kinds of, this, this person likely doesn't ever experience any kind of pleasure in their body. They have no mm -hmm. idea how their body exists in space. Do they have any idea of how they're sitting? Do they have any idea of how clothes feel against their skin? That sort of thing. Even you have to really think about, you know, how do I get them back aware that they have a body first? Yeah. Because they're so disconnected from that concept. The idea of having a body is just so embarrassing and shameful and humiliating sometimes. Mm. Could you talk about the role that somatic work plays in this phase? Because I think this is really, really important. Bringing awareness to people who who feel disconnected, who feel disembodied, bring awareness to the existence of the body and the fact that the body holds information that is a lot of some, a lot mm -hmm. of different ways that that can be approached, but talk a little bit about how you do that with your work. Well, I think we can thank Bessel van der Kolk for making this much more palatable <laughs> to, to the general public. The body. I saw him speak live. It was one of the highlights of, <laughs> oh my God, me so too. Cool. I thought I was going to, it was I like, I went through this, like this like crazy journey of like hero worship and then like <laughs> demolishing that when I, when I, when I was in this workshop with him, because I was like, Oh my God, this is like a, this is like the master. He's like this, one of the first people who's really done a lot of work to understand like body image and body work and trauma and how all of this stuff is interrelated. And I was like, oh my God, you, you are, you are a God in the field. And then as the workshop went on, I was like, oh, you're, 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 you're you, because I was like, I was like, oh, like you're great and you're super smart. And I agree with 100%, almost 100% of everything that you're saying. Yeah. And also like, you're kind of egotistical. Sure. And yeah. like, like, and, and okay. silly too. Did you find him he's really very silly? silly? Yeah. I was yeah. very surprised by that. Cause his work on trauma is like very not silly. <laughs> yeah. But I, one thing that he did say that I thought was really interesting, and maybe this is just interesting as, cause I'm a therapist, but you know, in the therapy room so much about how I feel in my body and ab about what is happening in this client that's sitting with me so much of how I feel is used in the session mm -hmm. how do I feel sitting here with this person what is coming up in me 
And I have to at least initially assume that this feeling is, is induced in me in some way, mm-hmm. that what I am feeling in me is how this other person also feels. And so what do I know about how this is arising in me and how can that be helpful for this other person? Is there a particular name for that in therapy? Like, is that a particular modality? Yeah, countertransference. Yeah, very cool. By the way, I want to tell anybody because I realized we just had like a super geek out moment and we didn't necessarily <laughs> clarify. So Bessel van der Kolk wrote The Body Keeps the Score on Trauma and it's great and it's becoming actually very popular. So maybe more people have heard of it now, but I just wanted to nail that. Um, okay, so countertransference is the idea that you as the therapist sit in a room with someone, you mm-hmm. find yourself feeling some kind of way mm-hmm. and that's information you bring into the session and say, I'm feeling this way. Are you feeling this way? Sure. You know, I I might not ask, are you feeling this way? But I'd say, you know, something that's really interesting is this is how I feel right now in in my body. Does that feel familiar to you? Mm. Can you help me understand why I might be feeling this way? And then that forces them to go inside themselves and think, okay, well, maybe that does resonate with me somehow. Mm -hmm. And that's the first step to understanding this countertransference phenomenon that happens in the therapy room. And the idea of countertransference is that it is something that can only happen in the relationship between a therapist and a client. So it's this very specific kind of phenomenon that happens in the therapy room. And the idea that this feeling is induced in me, that this this must be something that the client is also feeling is really where that exploration of countertransference begins but it's not always the truth of what is happening. We start there because that is most often what is happening. But there's also other things, concordant countertransference, complementary countertransference, which is one is, you know, how I feel is how is how they feel, right? We 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 are concordant here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's complementary countertransference, which is really that like um how I feel right now in this moment, I am enacting this other relationship that this client Mm. has been in. So I have now become the critical mother. I have now become Mm. the punitive father or the, you know, mean best friend or, you know, whatever is coming out in the relationship there. And when that happens, that's really, really, really rich work. Yeah. So What I think is, I mean, first of all, this is all just very cool. I think there are probably many therapists out there who have no reason whatsoever to stay attuned to themselves in a therapy Mm -hmm. session, right? Like there's no reason to be aware of what you're feeling in your body if you're approaching therapy from an intellectual place. So one of the things I always loved about you and the work that you do is that you are essentially forced in order to like be aware of this kind of uh, stuff going on. You're forced to to attune to both yourself and the other mm-hmm. person in the room. I don't know if it's equally, you know, but in in different ways, you never get to abandon yourself and that connection to the somatic work. Like you're basically doing self somatic work all the time, just in service of in service of the yeah, other, right? And that's so a really interesting. great point too, though that that not all of it's useful. You know, right. what I feel in my body, the, the, the things that might arise, like that might not be useful for the client to know about. So I might not bring it up. Sure. You know, it, I, I might sometimes have some inclination of what, what is happening. And I, then I have to assess, is this client ready 
to go there? Are they ready to understand this piece of it? Would this be overwhelming? What is actually, what is the disclosure that is actually in service of the mm-hmm. client? And then sometimes it's totally my shit that's coming up. Like I was going to say, I yeah, how often is it like, just oh, your own thing? Yeah, that is, that is me <laughs> right yeah. here. So I'm making a note <laughs> that that is something that I need to address in myself. And I will set right. that aside for right now because I need to be present with this other person. But yeah, that definitely does happen. Of course. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to hear, this is like none of my questions. I'm completely abandoning the conversation <laughs> I wanted to have. We'll get back to it. But like, I, I would love to hear what is the difference in your mind between this dynamic and just like regular sort of tuned in um, empathy between friends or partners or loved ones or whatever. Sure. And I think that the main thing that is different about it is that I'm trained to look at things through a specific lens. And I'm trained to look at things in a way that is different than just friend empathy. You know, the the different of like, I I know what you're feeling because I I felt it too. And I I understand this, right? It's also the different understanding of the relationship. You know, the relationship exists in service of this other person, which isn't true in any other relationship that you're going to have. You know, I, my job, is to be helpful to this other person full stop, Mm -hmm. you know, and what that helpful looks like is going to be different from client to client and in different phases of the therapeutic relationship. Um, but because I am in service of this other person, I am supposed to be helpful to this other person. And this person doesn't necessarily know a whole lot about me, right? That's how it becomes very different. So because the person doesn't know a whole lot about me, they're going to start making a lot of assumptions about me because they're going to get really curious about Mm -hmm. me. You know, that always comes into the work at some point, you know, 100% of clients at some point get really pissed off that like, I know everything about them. And like, the only thing that they might know about me is that I'm married. And the only reason why they know that is because I wear a wedding ring, you know, like, like they just get really upset about the imbalance of information in the relationship. And then that gets explored. And then we understand, Mm -hmm. start to understand the assumptions that they're making about me, which aren't about me at all. They're all some kind of unconscious projection that they're having, which are really about them. Yeah. So the directionality of the relationship, obviously like that's a massive difference between Mm -hmm. two, two peers or whatever in the real world versus, uh, what, what's going on in the therapeutic realm, which I guess, I don't know that I want to say it's like anything other more power dynamic than peers, but the point being that it's single directional, right? It's like, you're helping them. They're not also supporting you and showing well, up for you. In I ways. think that you're actually right in calling it a power dynamic. Okay. You know, there, there absolutely is a power dynamic there and there can't, there, there, I don't, I don't know how there wouldn't be. They are coming to me to be helpful. I, I am in charge of this you know, right, right, they right, are right. in charge of themselves and how much they engage in the treatment and what they get out of it. They are the experts on themselves, but they are looking to me for that guidance. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that I really, as a young therapist, really had to contend with. It's just the importance of that role that I could say something just flippantly because I, you know, I said something, I said something, you know, people say, you know, that I said something and, and that lands so differently for this person than maybe the meaning that I had even put behind it. You know, you have to be really aware that, that I am in a position of, of power here 
you know, there is a power imbalance in that relationship, which is right for a lot of work, right? There's a lot of things that can be worked out through that power balance, but you have to, I have to be really aware of it and it has to be, be treated really, really tenderly. So that is making me think of the stuff that we had sort of touched on wanting to, to bring into this conversation here around taking up space and specifically like having an impact on the space around you. Mm-hmm. So Obviously there's a ton of gender conditioning around who's allowed to take up space in this world, like physically, emotionally, intellectually, mm-hmm. everything. Um, but in this particular example you're giving me, I'm curious how it felt to you, especially as a young woman to be put in such a authority position with another person that you also like you were in charge of them, but the space, right? Like literally you Mm -hmm. set from the moment they came into Mm -hmm. your space, you were creating it. Um, how, how was that? Did that feel easy, hard? You know, when I first started, I didn't know that I fully understood the, the weight of it. You know, you know, I had intellectual and theoretical understanding of it all, but until I really settled into myself as a therapist, I don't know that I really fully understood it. You know, the, the counter-transference begins the moment somebody lands on my website. They're already right, starting to right. assume things about that me. relationship. Starting, begins. That relationship is already beginning. What they are thinking about me, what they're thinking this might be like is, is already formulating. So already we are taking up space in one another's lives, right? We are taking up men- yeah. mental space there. And it, it took me a while, I think, especially with the background as a performer, to mm. be able to settle in that position of not just taking up space, but not having to do anything to deserve to take up that space. Ooh, you know, yeah. that, that the, you know, I know that when I, in my first, you know, year at least of, of a therapist, I was performing the role of a therapist mm. a lot, like, cause that's what I, that's who I was. I was a performer, you know, I can yeah. do this, you know, but, but the only effective way to be a therapist is to just be. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, you should go ahead. I was going to say, this is one of the things that I learned from you really, really early on. I don't remember how long I had been a life coach when we started running those workshops. Um, But I remember just being like agog at how you would wait and wait in the room, like all of this space (laughs) and quiet, like you, you might pose a question or, or topic or whatever. And then I would just be like wanting to crawl out of my skin or answer it or like be like, I'm going to call on someone so that this is over. Like it made me so uncomfortable. And you, we talked about it and you were basically like, like, it's not my job to fill that space. They've been invited. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. my job to hold it and to be available. And I learned so much about how I was doing too much just (laughs) from watching you and being like, oh my God, I'm going to like die if this continues. It was so interesting and valuable. But But think about how important that moment is for the other person that here's this space that is created for me. And I get to choose whether I take it or not. Mm-hmm. I get to choose whether I accept or decline that invitation. How powerful is that? Especially yeah. for people who tend to be pleasers or perfectionists. 
the idea that I can say no and there's no guilt behind that. And I can just say yeah. no and I can just not not have that, not yeah. enter that space, not say that, not not participate in that. That is just as valid and just as important for for a lot of people as actually participating. Yeah. Sometimes the no is the work. That I love that. There's a lot of like just I mean, trauma-informed, consent-based, mm-hmm. like stuff flying around in a long silence that way that I, I certainly like appreciated uh, getting to learn about. But then, but then also, you know, analytically, isn't that so interesting? The silence that is held, eventually someone's going to talk. Eventually someone's anxiety is going to push them forward and have mm-hmm. them say something. And how interesting is that, that it was this person after this amount of time said this specific thing to this specific group of people. There's so much meaning in all of Mm. it. And you can't get to any of that unless, unless you wait. Sure. I also think coming from the position, I mean, well, I was a personal trainer first. And so there's a lot of like authority in that position as well. Once I became a life coach and started working with people around body image, I was definitely like bringing a lot of that same energy of like, here's what we've got. I'm setting the space. Now you talk. I have, you know, I'm just, there was a lot of like a lot of too much energy behind it, I think in general, but there was also a desire to prove myself, right? There's a lot of ego. There was the feeling of like, if I let two minutes go by after asking a client a question, I have wasted two minutes of their time. I know exactly how much that costs. I didn't earn my worth as a coach. Mm-hmm. But around this time, um, I would practice because my calls at the time were done on phone as opposed to Zoom. But like I would put myself on mute because I was someone who wanted to 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 fill the space and talk and share mm-hmm. and and just do. And so I would literally like, practice the thing I had seen you doing and like put myself on mute and just like grip the edges of my desk and wait. Like, don't do it. Don't interrupt because I want to be so bad. I'm like, you know what? Why don't I rephrase that? It doesn't sound like it. (laughs) So funny. (laughs) And also like so interesting and important for you to know, right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. the idea that, that I have a different, I have difficulties holding that, that space or that silence, you know, what does that say about me and my relationship oh, yeah. to anxiety and my relationship to, to my body constantly trying to push me forward? Why, why is it difficult for me to just be, to just exist? Yeah. So interestingly, because so much, well, so many of my clients are, uh, they were conditioned as girls and women, and they they feel very, very uncomfortable taking up space. They are often trying to shrink themselves, like physically their actual bodies, mm-hmm. energetically, like they don't want to be a burden or ask for help or even just like share their emotions in case that makes someone else have to do labor, you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. And um, I often felt like I came from the opposite where I was a second child to a brother who was just like 18 months older than me and did all the cool shit I wanted to do and got all the attention I wanted. And so I learned very early to like grab my space, like throw Mm. myself into the middle of the space and be like, look at me. And so that's Mm -hmm. why I think it really, I had to work so hard to dial it back and just Mm -hmm. be able to say like, just exactly the same kind of work, just coming from the other direction. Like Mm -hmm. this is not serving the space any more than it would if I shrank mm-hmm. and learning to find that middle area where I'm like moving between whatever feels authentic, but not 
not out of habit, not out of anxiety. Like that was hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, my, my, my inner therapist right now is like, oh my gosh, how interesting is this, that the two of you found each other in that way, that these are the clients that you're working Mm -hmm. with are the ones who really want to shrink. And you as a person, you're the one who really wants to fill up the space. Well, how symbiotic is that? Yeah. Yeah. Every, everybody gets their needs met in that relationship, right? They get, they get to continue to retreat and you get to continue to Mm -hmm. advance. Right. So what an interesting phenomenon that keeps happening there. That's super interesting. Yeah. And I would say too, like, uh, over the years, I guess I've never really thought about it from like, I'm, I'm picturing like a chart in my head, but I would say over the years, as I stopped habitually taking up that kind of space from a place of like, uh, space is scarce and you got to jump on it or you don't get Mm -hmm. any. Uh, I think that my, my client base really diversified, which makes a lot of sense hearing what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there is this, this, this idea of, um, you know, that, that people generally find what they need, right. (laughs) And what they need may or may not be actually useful, right. Right. Like what what they think they need, right. People generally find their, a way to get their needs met somehow. And maybe that's not a need that needs to be continued to be met. Like the need to, or the need to take up less space. And if you then are not, joining them in that, that, uh, them taking up less space, you're not assisting with that process anymore. I I imagine that your clients would diversify because, you know, you're, you're no longer fulfilling that need. So there are other people who are going to be attracted. I also think like looking back, this would probably be around the time that, uh, I've, I've, was always really bothered when people called me inspiring on the internet. I'm like, thanks. I'm just like literally being a person. I'm it's like glad amazing. You are it's one of those words that like doesn't have any meaning anymore. I, well, I took it oh, a step further than that. It wasn't even meaningless. It was like offensive to me. Cause I was like, I'm out here trying to like teach and help. And I have like uh-huh. stuff that, that I'm creating. And for you to be like getting the most value out of just watching me person is like, what the F? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's it's very dismissive. It felt that way. Yeah. yeah. But I think that probably again, there was like that crossover point at which I stopped hearing about how inspiring I was mm-hmm. when I don't know which came first here, but like somewhere in that space of I was no longer just like taking up the space that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting in your evolution there. Yeah. Okay. So none of this is what I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to take us back. (laughs) I love this. I could talk about this forever, but tell me in your experience, why do you think it's so difficult for people, often women, but I know this can be anybody, Mm -hmm. um, to take up space and what that relationship to the body is like? You know, there is this kind of colloquial theory that women really want to shrink their bodies, take up less space, make themselves as small as possible, make as little impact on their environment as they possibly can, because there's this unconscious wish to really just disappear. You know, Mm. there's this wish that I I could become so small that I know I no longer exist, Mm. right? That there's this, there's this very subtle, almost like death fantasy that Do you believe that with it? I actually believe the opposite. Okay. I, I think that a lot of times these women specifically are actually more grappling with 
how difficult it is to be alive. It's not that they're grappling with this death fantasy, but the existentialism of how both beautiful and painful it is to be alive. You're, they're constantly contending with this, this feeling of, of, of both pleasure and pain and difficulty. And, and we, can't, we don't necessarily know how to talk about that or feel about that or yeah. suss any of that out. So it so it's not that we're trying to make ourselves small to disappear, but that we're making ourselves small in the process of understanding that conflict of being alive and what it means to be a person. My gosh, that's really interesting. First of all, I had not, well, I mean, I'd certainly come across the first theory, but mostly just in eating disorder spaces. I'd never really yeah. considered it more generally, um, but I've definitely never heard the second one. I mean, that's a really much more nuanced kind of approach it's to just, it. I mean, I have no research to back that up. Sure, yeah. Just like my own couch, right? What comes on in my in my therapy room. But, you know, I, I just I just really believe that so much of the work of paying attention to your body, of understanding how your body is existing is really, really about the conflicts of being alive. What does it mean to be fully alive in the world? What does it mean to be alive in my body? How can I contend with being aware of all of these things all at once? And how do I make sense of any of it? Yeah. You know, that's that's such an existential question that, you know, has a million answers and also yeah. no answers. <laughs> I, uh, I really love having conversations with clients about existential questions of worth mm -hmm. because you know, if somebody says like, I just, they're, they're giving me sort of a shame narrative or something. And it's like, I just feel like I'm a burden on people or, you know, I'm not worthy of such and such care or something. I'm like, okay, so let's just talk like more vaguely, generally, existentially, spiritually, uh, what makes a person worthy of care? What obligates a person to care for another person? Just these big, big heady questions. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it often is absolutely impossible for a person to reconcile a feeling that everyone is worthy if they're mm -hmm. born, they're here, they're worthy of care mm -hmm. and love and all these things and the feeling of being unworthy themselves, mm -hmm. not for any particular reason, usually. They can't usually say, just sort of a vague feeling. And it's such a, it's like, I mean, I bring a lot of humor into these sessions because like it, you can laugh at how like this dichotomy in the brain can be <laughs> so powerful on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone is worthy. Also, I am not like it is. It is wild. Yeah, but I think that that really speaks to the conflicting messages that we receive from day one, you know, be big and be bold and take up space and do what you want to do and go forge your own path. But not like that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. but also follow the rules, but also be a good girl, right? Yeah. Oh, go explore, figure yourself out. But, but, you know, not too much. Yeah. Right. So we're constantly caught between these two dichotomies of almost everything from, from yeah. even how we, as our culture, we treat and think about babies, about infants, mm -hmm. this idea that, that babies are, are truly the most hopeful symbol that we have yeah. in our, in, in the world, right? A baby exists as, as hope, like, oh my gosh, the, you exist in the world. And now you contain potentially this, this ability to, you know, further something and make the yeah. world better and all of this stuff. But also we're going to give your parents like zero support to make that happen. Ooh, yeah. 
So like you're worthy and there's hopeful and it's this very like beautiful experience of being born and how wonderful it is to have a baby and to be an infant. And then also like, we're not going to take care of you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So like, you're not actually important to us. Yeah. Gosh, that is so interesting of a conflict literally from, from Mm -hmm. day one. I mean, from conception, even there's that conflict and, you know, right there, even at conception, we're struggling with, with the the conflict of aliveness. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) how do you, uh, how do you fix all this, Suzanne? How do you, um, how do we solve all these existential queries? (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't know that we do. I don't know that it's fixable. I think that the thing that we do is we become comfortable with the not knowing. Mm -hmm. We become comfortable with the idea that there are unanswerable questions within us and somewhere we find peace within that. So I grew up uh, with atheist parents. I grew up atheist myself and I was so freaking righteous about the fact (laughs) that I was right and everyone else was an idiot. You're noticing a little pattern in my background here um, <laughs> that I was like, at least like, yeah, okay. So my life is meaningless and everything is nothing. And I'm like miserable about it in ways that I didn't even realize, but at least I'm right. And it wasn't until I had this like breakthrough in my mid twenties of like, I would rather be wrong mm-hmm. because who it's not hurting anyone. If yeah. I just choose a belief that makes me feel like my life has meaning and it turns out I'm wrong. I can live with that. And so there was this massive like breakthrough around just being allowed to like pick something random that made me feel like my life had meaning basically. Yeah. Um, and, and not be able to prove it. I had always been like, at least mine can't be disproven, you know, like <laughs> that was the important thing. Yeah. You know, something that comes up to me around that is how the field of psychology and psychiatry and mental health, um, it's considered, you know, like a soft science because like, how do you prove any of this? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we can't do brain scans for existential crises, right? You know, we, there is no tech like science experiment that proves whether we're right or wrong. We're just, we're just basing the whole thing on, on our feelings and Mm -hmm. what our, what our feelings are trying to tell us about how we actually think and what we believe and what makes us feel most at home within ourselves. Yeah. I mean, obviously I know there's no answers to this. There is being cheeky, but I do feel like as someone who also deals with it on a regular basis, like I I will, I I will avoid it with a client. If it never comes up, like I will never Mm -hmm. push it there necessarily, but it is shocking how often it comes up, especially Mm -hmm. like early on. Just to kind of tap into those questions of like, well, what are your beliefs and start exploring the conflicts and start exploring the fact that you either can't know and therefore might be wrong, which is very uncomfortable for some of us, or you, you have been taught there is a very, very binary right and wrong. And so Mm -hmm. you feel like you're definitely sure. Um, Like there's just all this stuff it comes down to really quickly. Mm -hmm. And I personally love holding all of the weirdness of it. I don't know how you feel. I love existential questions and conversations. <laughs> no, they're super rich for understanding how people are living within themselves, you know, and, and what people are coming in with. You know, I think vaguely we're, we're talking about the idea of an afterlife. What happens mm. after we die? What is, what is our sense of spirituality around this? Mm-hmm. How do we 
contend with being alive if we don't know what happens after we die? You know, what is all of this for anyway? You know, and, and I have this conversation a lot in a bunch of different ways. And so much of it, at least for me, what I've noticed and where the conversation tends to go, which might just be like me and how I look at it, um, that we have to separate the idea of process and destination. You know, that if you're looking at it as like this existential crisis of, of beliefs, what happens when I die? What do what, what happens when I die and what makes all of this meaningful? Well, that's jumping right to the destination. Mm. You know, the meaning is held in the process of getting there. What happens after we die is, you know, in my mind, less important than what happens before we die. Mm. You know, what yeah. the process of living is is the thing that is the yeah. meaning. And there's so much feedback along the way, too. I mean, <laughs> like. Gosh, I i mean, because I didn't grow up with it, I really can't connect to the idea of like the end of life being a destination of any kind. But I just feel like there's just so much feedback. How could you possibly ignore all that and like f- keep focusing? It blows my mind. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I was raised without religion mm. too. You know, my parents were both pretty agnostic. You know, in fact, I actually don't really know what my parents' religious beliefs are. That's like how non-existent it yeah. was in, in our lives. Um, you know, but, but I think that, that there is so much information out there about, you know, what happens after death or what happens as we die and what does that mean for everything that came before it, that we're letting this, this thing that we don't know anything about determine all of our decisions that come prior. Mm -hmm. It's like living your life in reverse almost. And I just think like, what a disservice we're doing to ourselves that we're hinging ourselves, our beliefs, who we are as people on, on something that we're not even really sure about. And there's, we actually cannot answer this question until we get there, you know? So we have to stay in the here and now and pay attention to ourselves here and now, because right now is all that matters. Mm -hmm. Right now is all that matters. Tomorrow doesn't matter. Yesterday didn't right now, this, this moment is the only thing that we have for sure. So who am I in this moment, Yeah. right? That's the question that we're constantly trying to answer. So you know that the work that I do is always focused on helping people get underneath the story that their body is the problem, their appearance is their problem, yeah. and therefore it's the solution, blah, blah, blah. Always about something deeper, something more emotional. And often I find that uh, meaning and purpose play a big role in a person's mm-hmm. body image issues in a variety of ways, including like, you know, uh, dieting or working at the, out at the gym or trying to like get to a certain body. This can take over as like a project of your life that gives it a feeling of like growth and purpose and mm-hmm. structure and meaning and all these things that if you don't have somewhere else, it's like a pretty convenient stand-in. Um, but also I think there's just a feeling in general of like, basically when you don't have meaning, or rather when you can't connect to something that feels meaningful in your life, then all the other questions get thrown into like just a worse space. Like what makes you worthy if you don't have meaning? Now mm-hmm. self-worth is a problem, right? Like now mm-hmm. that's an area that has just sunk. And mm-hmm. what makes, uh, like why bother with pleasure or fun? You know, if there's no mm-hmm. meaning behind any of it. Now now anything that might feel good in your body is sunk, right? Like it kickstarts a lot of issues that lead to body image issues yeah. when there isn't a connection yeah. 
of this is meaningful. This is what makes my life meaningful. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you and I, and I see that and I keep coming back to the idea that everything is important, right? Anything that somebody walks into my office with deserves my, my utmost time and attention. And, and I think when that crescendo of falling pieces (laughs) starts happening, you're my job is not to like consistently pick up the pieces and keep patching them back together, but to be with them on the ride down. So then we're there together. We're, we're here together at the bottom. We got here together. Okay, now let's look around us and what do we have? What do we see that is left around us? That's where we begin. That's how we start to put the, all of these pieces back together again. And mm. the, the pieces getting put back together again isn't necessarily like, you know, I end up feeling like, wildly confident and I am now fixed forever at the end of it but it's like oh here's this piece that comes from what my mom said to me when I was nine years old and I'm still really holding that and that that comment that she has forgotten about decades ago has determined how I I'm making decisions about what I'm eating for breakfast or Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how I walk on the street or what kind of clothes I wear you know that's heartbreaking yeah that is a fucking tragedy yeah that that is happening and so that has to be looked at yeah that also reminds me uh with clients who will sometimes like they'll describe the whatever the ritual is like looking in the mirror stepping on the scale um seeing a photo whatever the thing is the body Mm -hmm. image gets kicked off and they check in some capacity to see how they should feel that day and it's very much like looking for looking for objective information about what kind of permission they have today. Like if I step <laughs> on the scale and it's over this number, then I do not have permission to be confident or eat breakfast. And I should feel like shit about myself, slouch my shoulders yeah. and apologize for my existence. And if it's under that number, I can check in and wear something <laughs> cute and go take a risk. You yeah. know? Like it yeah. really is this almost like like linear permission seeking mm-hmm. around how much space can I take up based on a, a, an unknowable authority that they've given mm-hmm. their power to. Yeah. And I always get really curious about why, you know, and who, Yeah, you know, yeah. who are you really trying to please or do this for? Cause it's certainly not you. Because mm-hmm. if it were for you, you wouldn't do it because right. this is hard and this is painful, <laughs> right? If this were actually something useful for you, yeah. I, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really exist. So, you know, I, and I always, you know, think about the idea of what is owed to what this person thinks that their debt to society is, <sighs> you know, Say more about know, that, please. Like, do I owe the world my attractiveness? Do I owe the world my smallness? Do I owe the world my guilt for existence? Do I owe my partner some, like, what is the thing that I feel like I am owed to compensate for my existence? And that's really what's going on there. It's not mm-hmm. about the scale. It's not about permission to wear a certain top or not. It, it's about what do I feel like I am in debt to the world for in this moment? And how do I need to be punished for that? Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to hear everything you've ever thought about this topic. I love <laughs> this topic. This is amazing. Um, I, I guess my first thought would just be like, well, why does a person come to that? Like, 
I understand that it is so, so common. I see it in all my clients. It's something we work on a lot, but what's your view on like where it comes from this feeling of indebtedness? Nobody says to a baby, you owe me, you better grow up and be hot and thin. But no, but we, we, yes, somebody, people do say yeah. that, yeah. To babies. <laughs> you know, I mean, how many weirdly sexualized Oh, little baby outfits fair, yeah. are there, you know, like we do say this to babies, that there's a very specific way that you need to be now. And there's a specific way that you need to grow up to be, you know, and if, if you do not, if you break those rules, if you do not conform to what we are telling you, you should be, well, well, then we've got a problem and you need to fix that problem. And you owe us now because you are not conforming to those rules. But what about the fact of like, okay, so Obviously, if you are not able to conform to a lot of ideals that were withheld or withheld, um, upheld in your, your family culture, the wider culture, that makes sense. But I would say that a lot of people who actually did basically uphold whatever they were expected to uphold to still feel like they are constantly apologizing just simply for existing. Sure, because they've spent their entire existence not being themselves. Mm. They've spent their entire existence not being allowed or allowing themselves curiosity about themselves. How do they actually think about this? How do they actually feel about this? What do they really want for themselves? Because I guarantee you, it's not this, mm -hmm. you know, this is not really an existence. And somebody who's doing all of those checks are really determining self-worth based on this arbitrary idea that they have, you know, that's not an existence. That's not, they would, I would imagine they would probably agree with that, that that mm. is a miserable experience. They're being really honest with themselves. So sure, they've, they've upheld, they've met all of the expectations of society, but yeah. at what cost, you know, how expensive was that for mm -hmm. them, you know, and maybe the debt to be paid is not the debt to society, but the debt to self. You know, I have, I have spent everything that I have Ooh, in order hit. to meet this idea. And now I just, I have nothing left for me. Yeah. That's an interesting thought that it could get turned basically at a certain point and the debt is now in an, mm -hmm. an internal debt, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily feel that way. No, it still feels like, oh my God, I have to yeah. meet. It's more all about society. It's all about society. Mm -hmm. You know, I I'm curious your thoughts on like shame as a universal experience, mm. because I sometimes feel that we are all just born with somewhat of a, of an apologetic nature for our existence. And then other times I'm like, no, that's absolute hogwash and it's society, <laughs> you know, but like shame is, is universal, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It is. And, and there's a whole lot of theory around why that is, you know, Jung would argue that it's really a part of this collective unconscious of being alive, this universal experience of being human. And there's so much folklore and story around it. I mean, the concept of Adam and Eve is really the mm -hmm. concept of how females develop shame, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of analytic theory that shame is the first, one of the first, if not the first feelings that we become aware of as infants, Ooh, when we what? start to discover that we have bodies, it's this oh. shame of knowing that we have a body and it, it sets us Why? up for Why would that be really true? complicated relationship. Yeah. You know, 
I don't know that I necessarily believe that. Okay. That is what the theory tells us. Huh. I don't know that. I mean, who am I to discredit all these like years, you know, but like, yeah, yeah. I, I just don't know that I buy that. I think that shame is, is absorbed as we grow. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that our parents are become very shameful of their bodies and babies are, you know, total mm. sponges for everything. So maybe there's something that gets absorbed there but and it's not like we can ever test like my thought immediately goes to like but what if we had a perfect society would that still happen like (laughs) there's no way to run this test of parents who were never exposed to shame to find out if it transfers yeah yeah I mean you know again like the idea of the collective unconscious would mean that Mm. it it would exist regardless just because Mm. it's part of what we come with as as humans it is this this universal experience across population that exists. I find like something I talk a lot about with clients in this space is often that there is a sense, not, not usually a memory. This is usually just sort of like a vague early childhood feeling of, um, of being a burden on our parents or of, of our parents being very, very exhausted and stressed by us. And so I think like when you just consider that you're basis, your whole reality is based on, on one or more exhausted, stressed <laughs> out at their wits end humans. Like it makes complete sense to me that you would end up worrying about being a burden, mm-hmm. feeling like a burden. I wonder if, if it's even that, and if like just community support in the, the young parenting era would change this amount well, of shame, you know? Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, what we said in yeah. the conversation earlier with those conflicts of, you know, babies being super hopeful. And also we don't care about you because we're going to offer your parents right. zero support, you know? Yeah. I totally agree with you that if our, if we offered parents actual support, parental leave, if we offered them better health care, you know, yeah. our maternal mortality rate is abysmal in this country. Mm-hmm. If we, if we offered parents more resources and more help, would they be more emotionally available for these infants who are sponges? And would those infants learn something else? You know, they're going to learn, they're going to learn how to be shamed anyway. You know, Mm -hmm. the world is going to take care of that, but maybe they would have this experience of home being a safer place. You know, I was also thinking like having other people around, like my thought was more Mm -hmm. community-based. I absolutely agree with what you're saying, but also just like, if the parents were given more time off that kind of mm-hmm. support where there's now fresh queer siblings taking care mm-hmm. of them or whoever, right? Like friends or siblings or, or, or grandparents or people who like literally aren't staying up all night, just making sure you survive. Um, at that point, there would be not only better resourced parents, but also a lot more um, exposure to people who just mm-hmm. aren't exhausted by you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it takes a village, isn't that what yeah. the, the, you know, phrase says, but yeah, I, I agree with you, you know, I, I agree with you that if we could set up early infancy better, however, that gets set up and setting yeah. up early infancy better would be supporting parents and providing community yeah, yeah, for yeah, parents, of course, resources for parents, you know, uh, how would we, how would we be different if, if yeah. our early experiences were different, you know? I wish I had an answer to that question. I know. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, okay. So one of the things that you you talk about sometimes that I think is so cool is the idea of there's like a lot of these existential questions applying to impacting the space around you, including the people around you. Um, and, and the question of 
what has to be displaced in order for me to exist here. Mm -hmm. And that automatically, I think for a lot of folks and especially women brings up this question of like, who am I to displace it? Yeah. Like, am I, am I being selfish by existing? Because this, you know, this exact space in this room could have been taken up by someone else or at a meeting, someone else could have spoken or at a, Mm -hmm. you know, in this partnership, someone else could be here enjoying this partner better than me. Like whatever it is, it's literally like guilt and shame around. Mm -hmm. It was selfish of me to have occupied space because it displaced someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my personal experience with that idea of space displacement and, and existing and having a body that exists, you know, for me, it was really complicated. Um, as a dancer, you know, you're really taught deference, right? You're really taught like, Mm. okay, the teacher is really the master. Like you check yourself, like, don't, you know, don't get too big, you know, physically or emotionally, you know, go to the back of the class. You have to earn your right to be in the front of the class. You have to be chosen to be in front. You have to be chosen for a solo to be able to take up the entire stage. Otherwise it's Mm -hmm. a lot of shared little bits. So, I mean, that that teaches a lesson that gets internalized. That's a complicated lesson that everything is really competitive, really. Yeah. And Um, you have to ask permission, permission. like someone else, there's an authority who chooses who gets to bestow this on you, this ability (laughs) to take up space. But, you know, I really, it all changed for me when I was at the gym one day and I had just started getting into weightlifting. And so I was like, you know, not lifting super heavy weights, but I was, I was at the gym on a Saturday morning. And I remember this so clearly. And I was at the squat rack feeling so self-conscious about being at the squat rack when it was like a busy Saturday morning. And I'm downstairs in the weight room with like a whole bunch of men and a whole bunch of men who very clearly know what they're doing. And I'm just starting to know what I'm doing. And, you know, there was this guy that this total like meathead of a man who like just looked very intimidating to me, put his bag right beside my squat rack and just started his warm up stuff. He was doing like crazy shit with chains. And it it was like, it was a wild, like, oh, wow, you know, that gym kind of situation. And just the way that the gym was structured, every time I had to go change my weight plate, I had to kind of invade his space a little bit. Yeah. I had to like intrude upon him. And every time I did, I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I would, you know, very quickly do it. And I would try to make it as, you know, you know, unobtrusive as possible. And I was constantly apologizing to this guy for like the 15 or 20 minutes or whatever as I was, as I was at the rack. And Finally, he takes out his earbuds and he gives me this look and he goes, you gotta be somewhere. You might as well be there and puts in his <laughs> headphones and then just goes back to doing what he was doing. And I was like, mind blown. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was just like, I, yeah, I've gotta be somewhere in the world. <laughs> you know, I, I exist. I gotta be somewhere. So I might as well just be here. Right. I was just like, and, and he has no idea that he of just course. totally blew my ever loving mind and like <laughs> profoundly changed my life in the gym on a Saturday morning. <laughs> so when we talk about like how women apologize a lot, you know, like, sorry for the, for, sorry for the extra email and yeah. like, whoops, sorry when somebody's in line, all this stuff, like we really are literally apologizing oh, yeah. for existing yes. and by existing, displacing 
whatever our right body because if i take something if i take space if i take the opportunity that means that somebody else doesn't doesn't mm. get it they don't get the space they don't get the opportunity and and women are just trained from birth to be community minded and generous and all of yeah. these things that you know the message to boys is independence forge your path be brave all of that yeah. stuff and and so i think that as women we really really start to absorb this real scarcity mindset that like there isn't enough space for everybody and I have to share. So I'm going to take as little space as I can for me as like this misguided act of generosity. Right. I I was gonna say, I would even say that I came from that same exact place. Like I went the other direction, but it was absolutely scarcity. Right. It was, there isn't enough. So I have to jump in, but like by no means did I feel entitled or like it was my, Mm -hmm. uh, it's all fear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's always a turning point in the therapy space when somebody understands that and can shift that mindset into something that is more abundant, that there's always what we need, Mm -hmm. right? There's always enough for everybody. Space in the way that we're talking about space is not a finite resource. The ways that we're talking about opportunity or money or all of these things, those are infinite resources. And there's always stuff available for us we might have to work hard to get it but it's Mm. still there and if somebody else has success or takes up space or what does something that I want to do it doesn't take away from my ability to also have that thing it actually creates more ability for me to have that thing because one now I know it's possible and two I have maybe a little bit of a roadmap to get there and Mm -hmm. three Success always creates more success. Generosity always creates more generosity. You know, this mindset though requires really zooming out because the details of whatever's in front of you often aren't abundant, right? Like there's one job, you took it, someone else didn't get it. There's no, Mm -hmm. this job is available to everybody. Like you have to zoom way out to be able to see this. Sure, sure. But that doesn't mean that there's no job available for them. Right. That doesn't mean that they're unemployed for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And if I or feel that like it was this other... wrong in some way to like right. fit into the puzzle the way you right. did. And if, if, if I feel like this other person is entitled to the job, why am I not entitled to the job mm-hmm. too? You know, it, there's a lot of arguments that could be made there. And that's a really interesting question. You know, if I, if I feel this about somebody else, if I can extend this generosity, if I can extend, extend, you know, whatever this is to somebody else, why do I also deprive myself of the exact Mm -hmm. same thing? I think the word entitled there is really interesting because obviously we use this a lot uh, in in terms of talking about like systems of oppression, who's at the top and how they feel about Mm -hmm. being there, right? Like people tend to feel entitled to be at the top because that's where they've always been. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel fair to them to have to like, you know, let other people up there (laughs) too. And I I think like, you know, in sort of a Lion King-esque way that a lot of uh, like white men in particular, you know, social classes, et cetera, like they were given this feeling of like, this is all for you, kid, you know? And like, (laughs) there is this entitlement. There is this feeling of like, not just you deserve this, but this actually belongs to you for the taking. Like this is yours. And I think with with women, we were never given anything similar. Mm -hmm. 
even if we arrive there eventually, it was never displayed for us. Like this world is yours, take it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not only that you deserve it, but it, it in fact belongs to you already. Like there is an entitled nature. And I'm not even saying I would want to hear that because I don't think that's appropriate for anyone to necessarily be told, (laughs) but like there is just this like disparity around who is told what the right way to like who belongs in the space. Right. Yeah. Fucking patriarchy, man. Yeah. And how much like, you know, a a woman on a subway with her knees together and a guy man spreading, right? Like, (laughs) yeah, that is another example of just like, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of guys feel their personal space bubble to be very big, you know, and like extending rather far outside of their Mm -hmm. actual bodies and women it's like extends far inside their bodies so that their body is already breaking this bubble. Yeah, it's so interesting the way that you framed that because there there actually is a little bit of psychoanalytic literature on this and it really comes down to genitalia. Tell like, me about it. Like men really want to perceive and be perceived that they have really big penises. Uh-huh. And so they expand their space as an extension of this. Gotta make room for the dick, right? And then it is also external. Gen- it's like that is yeah, totally, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And female genitalia is internal. Oh my gosh. So there's this impulse to fold in on one's self because your mercy. genitalia does not take up additional space. It is on the inside. And there's also the idea that in heterosexual sex, you know, women take something into their bodies, whereas men take up space in somebody else's body. Right, <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. I mean, psychotherapy can sometimes drive me nuts. We've talked about this where there are times where I'm like, why does anyone need to hear that though? Like, it's so interesting. I know. It's true. Sometimes they're like, what is the usefulness of that particular yeah. study? But also like, what a cool thing to know. Totally. So what would you say then, like either to someone who struggles to take up space, who struggles like to feel worthy or deserving of that space, who de- uh, denies themselves space or you know, however this looks like, what do you, what do you say? What do you encourage? Well, this might sound counterintuitive or, um, risky, but I always encourage them to try a one or two day experiment where they take up as much space as possible and just see what happens around them. Do people adjust to them? Do people get pissed off? Does nothing happen? Like, just what happens if you start taking up space? Because so often the story that we're told is nobody will like me and, you know, it causes this whole crescendo of of effects. And like more often than not, like nothing really happens. (laughs) The only thing that actually happens is that person feels a little more confident, Mm -hmm. you know? So I, I challenge them to spend a couple of days taking up as much space as they possibly can. I love that. I also used to give this, uh, practice to clients. I haven't thought about it in years. So I want to like bring it back in now. Um, but of like energetically posturally, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of through height, through, through vocal power, whatever it is, taking up as much space that way Mm -hmm. on the streets of New York city, where like people are constantly going in and out of your space and just Mm -hmm. noticing how many more people it's like, if you're used to being the one who ducks and like makes yourself narrow to get through other people will, if you don't like, It is this sort of automatically balancing thing because for the most part, no one's going to just smash into you because you didn't move. 
Like everyone is constantly balancing to do something different, but it's such a weird feeling to literally watch people give you Mm -hmm. the bubble you chose to take up. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that would work on just like a random, you know, like (laughs) rural street because you don't have this feedback constantly. But I always thought that was so interesting. That is, yes, fascinating. And I've seen it happen and I've challenged myself to do it because I typically am the one who like shifts just because I got to get somewhere fast and I'm not about to enter into like some (laughs) battle with this other person about it. But it is interesting when I, when I decide, no, I'm not moving, (laughs) you know, other people do move and like, nobody cares. Mm -hmm. It's nobody cares. Um, But, but there's this really interesting concept in, in movement and some of the movement-based work that I do, the concept of a kinosphere, which is not necessarily how much space your body is taking up physically, but how much space your body is taking up physically. And what is the energetic space around your body that is also taking up space? And so you want to think about your kinesphere as well. When you're thinking about how much space do I want to take up? How much impact do I want to make on my environment? Because if you, if you really want to grow, your kinesphere is going to have to grow with you. This, this mm-hmm. idea of how much space energetically I, I am taking up without actually so physically doing it. I feel like I can, I can like already hear our listeners like crawling out of their skin, imagining taking up (laughs) more space than their actual body (laughs) or like doing it on purpose. (laughs) But you know, it's really interesting because like, you'll, you'll see other people, you'll notice other people when they do it, like the people that come with like this presence and like, you just feel it, you know, or everybody actually has that, but some people's it's, it's a little bit smaller. It's a little bit you know, more accommodating or however you want to frame it, but everybody's got a kinesphere and it can grow and change, contract. And also think know. about like, what a, what a disservice it would be to not have one big enough to like hold a space, like for example, as a therapist, but even just as a friend or as like a, you know, mm-hmm. at a meeting or whatever to like have such a small sphere that, that in fact, you couldn't hold the room. You couldn't contain yeah. the topic, like whatever it is. Yeah. Because in the world or person relationship doesn't get you. Yeah. You know, I I think the first step there though, is feeling that we are worthy of what is right in front of us in the first place. We deserve to be in the meeting. We deserve to have the conversation. We deserve to be a good friend. We deserve to have somebody be a good friend to us. You know, until we answer those questions of deserving, it's really hard to get to the, the idea of taking up space at all. Yeah. So maybe this is an impossible thing to answer here, but I feel like everyone's going to ask, how do I do that? How do I start to feel deserving when I feel undeserving? Well, I think we first start to ask questions about the undeserving. Why do Mm. I feel like I don't deserve this? Again, going back to the question, why do I assume something about other people that I don't offer to myself? Mm -hmm. You know, what is the compassion that I can hold for myself? What what is the idea of self-forgiveness? You know, I, I love the, the Lucille Clifton poem, I'm running into a new year. And she talks about, I, I'm running into a new year and the old years blow back like wind in my hair. And, and but the, the crux of the poem that is so beautiful is she talks about, you know, how will I forgive myself for the things that I said to myself when I was 16, when I was 26, mm. when I was 36, even 36, you know, how can I ask the things that I, I love and I leave to forgive mm. me? I think that is such a powerful concept when it comes to the idea of acceptance and deserving, Mm -hmm. you know, how do I forgive myself for those things? How do I forgive myself for treating myself how I've treated myself? 
feel like I'm, I'm hearing though, the question of like, how do I forgive myself for being here almost like, how yeah. do you even address that one? I mean, I mean at that point you didn't choose yeah. it, but that's also the shame of being alive. Yeah. Who am I to be here? Yeah. Which goes back. I mean, I, I feel like this is of course, like, it's so hard to ever give like, what should I do with something like mm -hmm. this big and, and complex, but like, it does go back to the feeling of just getting comfortable with the fact that you can never know. Yeah. There is no answer. Like mm -hmm. the, the feeling that you, your existence makes life worse for people. Like you can't, there's no blind study. We will ever be able to run to mm -hmm. find this out. And even so nobody picked it. Like you're here. Like there's just, there's so much about it. You have to get comfortable with the. Right. But, but even that, that idea, my existence makes everything worse for other people. That is not a fact. That is not a fact that we right. can test. So why do we believe it? Is, is it that my existence makes everything worse for people? Or is it that that is a conclusion I have drawn because of various thoughts and feelings and beliefs and assumptions and sensations and everything that I have learned about myself or thought I knew about myself before? Yeah. You know, that, that, that thought doesn't come out of nowhere. That's a culmination right. of something. And if we can dismantle and unpack what's actually contained in that thought, we might get somewhere. Yeah. And a huge difference between like the life coaching uh, framework and the therapy framework I know we've talked about is that like, I tend to be more focused on helping people, um, you know, like reframe a belief or mm -hmm. find a new way of breaking through or dismantling, or it, there's like a lot of action oriented mm -hmm. stuff yeah. towards changing it. Um, and you, you do a lot of this like space holding and exploration and curiosity mm -hmm. and, and compassion. And I would say that the thing I always ask people in these positions is, can you identify what it was protecting you from or what it's protecting you from now? Like, can you identify its, its service or attempt at service? Mm -hmm. How is it trying to help you? What is it helping you um, or trying to help you earn or avoid? Because there's a lot of stuff in that too. A lot of information totally. Totally. where you can kind of get worked around the thing that felt unworkaroundable yeah. once you realize like, oh, this was just, this was about something else, you know? Right, right, right. The idea of protection, you know, mm -hmm. this, this limiting belief or this limiting thought that I have about myself for myself is really protecting me from something else. Yeah. You know, what am I defending against? What is that thing that feels really vulnerable that has to mm -hmm. be really protected? And that's going to be different for everybody. And sometimes it's like, yeah. actually the thing that I'm protecting is a fear of success or I'm protecting this idea that I have to be sufficiently punished all, all the time. Yes. I have to, you know, there, there's a whole lot that gets wrapped up into that. Yeah. There's a lot of fear I find, especially around body and stuff, but a lot of fear of like humiliation. If you, if you decided to think mm -hmm. nice thoughts about yourself and get rid of your shame, the, the big fear is that you would be like proven wrong and someone would like knock you off your pedestal and it would just be humiliating. I can't believe you thought you looked good. I can't believe right. you liked yourself. But if we're, but if we're there, right, if we're, we have this self-acceptance and self-forgiveness and we have this confidence to say, I am okay and I deserve, I deserve to live. I deserve to be here. I enjoy being here. This is actually pretty fucking great. Yeah. If, if we get to that place where we can genuinely say those things, I think we can get to a place also where that somebody who's trying to tear us down, we can have compassion for that person. Yeah. You're like, wow, that person's really, really suffering. Yeah. You know, they, if they're threatened by this, they're yeah. really suffering. And, and maybe, maybe I can hold space for them too. Oh man. 
turning it on its head. All right. Suzanne, this was incredible. Thank you so much for being here. I Thank you so to much you for having me. About existential shit all day long. I was yeah, totally going to really ask about there. body connection, somatic work, but this was way more fun. Um, okay. So tell people where they can find you if they're interested in learning more or working with you. Sure. Sure. If you want to work with me or you just have some questions, definitely reach out. Um, you can find me on my website, which is suzannegarrison.com. And I look forward to hearing from anybody. And we will link that in the show notes so that people can find you there. Um, and obviously listeners, you know where to find me at Jesse Nealand on Instagram and jessineeland.com, my website. Um, all right, Suzanne, any final thoughts? Keep living. Really just keep <laughs> living. You right? heard it here, folks. Yes, <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for being here and everyone. I'll catch you next week. 